Join us September 30th through October 2nd for the 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The topic of this year's symposium couldn't be more timely as we look at healing from historical trauma. This is the first year we are hosting the event virtually, and the best part is the cost to attend is reduced, and full conference registration is only $180. Also, there are discounts available to students and groups. Learn more about the symposium and register today at zerosymposium.org. really is about acknowledgement, apology, and atonement. And there's no perfect way to do that. Mm -hmm. We're never even going to approach that unless we take some concrete steps. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're thrilled that our dear friend Carmen White Yonick is going to interview Hannibal B. Johnson. As many of you know, Hannibal wrote Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. He's an attorney, author, and independent consultant specializing in diversity and inclusion, as well as cultural competence issues and nonprofit governance. He chairs the Education Committee for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. And Carmen is amazing. And she's a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional and a non-denominational minister. She facilitates the association's coping with trauma from racial injustice support and open dialogue group. And you can get all the details about that at mhaok.org forward slash racial injustice. And as soon as this episode is over, I hope you'll all go register for the Zero Mental Health Symposium at zerosymposium.org. It's scheduled for September 30th through October 2nd. The theme is healing from historical trauma, and Hannibal is one of our phenomenal keynote speakers. Just one last quick note, this podcast is a condensed and edited version of an hour-long Facebook Live event that happened on July 2nd, and you can actually still watch that on Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Facebook page. And we've been holding on to this podcast version of the Facebook Live to help get everyone excited about Hannibal's keynote address closer to the virtual conference that is coming up very, very soon. That all being said, let's get the conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Welcome everyone uh, to this hour that we'll be spending with the incomparable Hannibal B. Johnson. I'm so excited to, to be here with him today, honestly, because I know he remembers this, but Hannibal was one of the first people, I will say one of the first Black people I met when we moved to Tulsa almost 25 years ago. And he is actually responsible. And, and I've never said this to you, Hannibal, but, but you are actually responsible for educating me on Black Wall Street and more importantly, the race massacre of 1921 when you put your, put the book, your book, um, that you signed to Tim and I when he was in law school at TU and you put it in our hands. And I was like, what? in the world. I, I was like, how could I not know this history? My family has very deep roots in, in Oklahoma. My mother was born in Wetumpka, so was her mother. And my, my aunts, my great aunts were born in Wetumpka. And, and then on my father's side, my uncles, the, the first part of the, there's eight children. And the first part of those eight were born in Oklahoma. I could not believe 
that 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 narrative was never spoken until that day. And that's literally 1996 that I'm the first time I'm hearing about, because of course, I mean, you know this, all the folks who are on are on here, this was not taught in our history books. It, unless unless you, you lived here or you had research that you just didn't know. And so Hannibal, it is, it is quite the honor for me to sit with you this morning and just talk to you about not only 1921, but also what is happening currently, our right now. And, and so I want to I want to talk to you about how you are weathering this storm, not as Hannibal Johnson, the attorney, the professional, but Hannibal Johnson, the black man. How are you weathering what's occurring right now across our country and across the globe? Well, good morning, and, and thanks for being here. Thanks for moderating this discussion. I want it to be a freewheeling discussion, so you can ask me anything that you want to ask me, and we'll take questions from the people who are who are listening in. Yes. Uh, in terms of what's going on currently in the country, on, on the one hand, I am incredibly encouraged by, particularly by young people, Mm -hmm. And by the mix of people, the cultural, racial, ethnic mix of people who are supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. that, that is a point of great admiration and encouragement for me that it had to happen uh, on the heels of, of such a horrendous precipitating event yes. is obviously very much troubling to me at the same time. And, and it's, it's, it's troubling in part because of frustration over trotting ground that we thought we had trod before. Mm. Dealing with problems that we thought we had sort of dealt with before. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways, I almost feel as though race relations are poorer today than they were in 1977 when I graduated from high school. Uh, which is uh, which is really uh, it, it's sad that I, that I would even entertain a thought like that because I know that we've made great progress in, in striking down legal impediments, legal barriers, and so forth. But what we have not done as well is changing the hearts and minds of all people with regard to issues of equality and equity. Mm -hmm. That plays out in situations like the George Floyd situation or the innumerable instances in which unarmed black men have been violated and in many cases um, murdered. Not always at the hands of law enforcement, but in, as the Ahmaud Arbery situation points out, yes. by people who, who really still subscribe to this white supremacist mentality. Mm -hmm. I've been reading your book about the Sauners, right? And Chandler and, and looking at all of the progress that have been made. I mean, to, to say that not only did you go to high school and graduated from high school in 77, but you, you went on to college and undergrad and then law school, all the things and to see in real time this narrative be played out again in, in ways that I 
I did not witness being born in 64. I didn't witness firsthand, but I did witness the deep, deep, deep pain and sorrow of family and blood bloodline and chosen family and and even in 68 in May of 68 when my cousin Bobby Joe Phillips was uh, murdered at the hands of police in San Antonio Texas that like that is inside of unfortunately inside of our story and so here we are and you brought up a couple of points that, that I actually agree with you too around when I see, like, I like it could make me weep. When I see our babies, our children, our young adults out in these streets, I have my goddaughter and our godson in the streets of San Antonio, been out there for well over two months, daily, daily out there as a local chapter of Black Lives Matter. I am very hopeful because it's been a, a one ember at a time catching fire to say this is this is this is enough for us. And we're picking up the mantle. We're picking up the mantle and even to see it in the streets of Tulsa as well. Historically, in on the streets of Greenwood. Juneteenth was very different. So I want to talk to you about that. June Juneteenth 2020 was very different for me. Very different. Although my family, as I said, born in San Antonio, Texas, that was my family who received the word, literally. And so I go back to the Andersons of, of receiving the word that there was a level of freedom because we're going to be honest here today. There was a level a modicum of freedom and liberation, but not completely. And so Juneteenth was very different for me. We, we celebrated my, my whole life. We've celebrated Juneteenth, but it was very different, different in 2020 because of what had occurred. The public, very public and graphic execution of George Floyd and also Ahmaud Albury at the hands of citizens of, of the state of Georgia. Also, the the murder of Breonna Taylor that we're still waiting for charges to be brought against those officers. And, and as you said, and, and, and there's so many hashtags, it is hard to remember. But I just want to ask you, how did Juneteenth land for you this year? This may sound a bit strange, but our, our beloved president, took credit for elevating Juneteenth. Rightly so. I mean, one of the one of the supreme ironies is he did elevate Juneteenth. He didn't intend to do that. He did But his presence here in, here in Tulsa, two and a half weeks after the 99th anniversary of the massacre on Juneteenth weekend amidst a COVID-19 pandemic, really brought media internationally to Tulsa. I can't tell you how many interviews I did. I did an interview with Norwegian Press, the BBC, folks from Canada, the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, ABC News, on and on and on. And part of what they wanted to talk about was the president's visit. But the other part of what they wanted to talk about is or was Juneteenth and 
the history here in Tulsa's historic Greenwood district. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, he did us a favor of sorts by elevating the history surrounding both Juneteenth and our own history right here in the Black community in Tulsa. So I think some people who would otherwise not have been really attuned to or aware of what Juneteenth is all about now are. And Senator James Langford is co-sponsoring a bill to switch out Columbus Day for Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Mm. That's amazing. This is a Republican senator right. in Oklahoma who's, right. who's working on this legislation. So, you know, we ha- I think we have to celebrate the small victories. Absolutely. And amen to that. That is so true because that is the that's the other perspective that, yeah, him taking credit for elevating. I, I, I love how you said that because I, I had not thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true that so many people in this country had zero, zero knowledge of Juneteenth, like none had never even heard of it. And the story goes that even the uh, president, of course, he didn't know, but it was his secret service person who was a black man who said, hey, that's happening on Juneteenth. Well, what's Juneteenth? And then had to get an education on on the not only the the mattering, but also the meaning of Juneteenth. And, and I think that one of the things that, that I love that you do so exceptionally well, especially inside of your, inside of your books, you don't just tell us what matters, but you bring us into a knowledge of meaning why this matters, why this content matters. But what I wanted to ask was what sparked your, not only your interest, because it's far beyond interest, but what sparked that interest that then turned into action to begin writing about Black Wall Street, the race massacre of 21, 1921, and then continuing that trend in your other books? I've always had an interest in, in history. That really springs from my father, who was an avid reader, his former teacher, and ended up being an employment counselor. But he, he read consistently throughout his life, always had bunches of books around, primarily things on Black history. Mm. So that kind of uh, seeped into my consciousness at some point. I came to Tulsa to work at a law firm. And when I got here, I was asked to write a guest editorial column on a recurring basis for the Oklahoma Eagle, which is the black newspaper here in Tulsa. I did that. At one point, I was assigned to do a a series on the Greenwood District. Mm -hmm. I was really eager to do that. And I learned a lot because I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't certainly didn't know anything about the master. So I learned a lot and decided, you know, I need to give this a fuller treatment. There had been a book done, an excellent book by Professor Scott Ellsworth, who's at the University of Michigan. It's called Death in a Promised Land. But it was a book about the massacre. I was interested in the Greenwood community Mm. in which the massacre occurred. So there's a difference. I'm interested in the people who created something remarkable, who suffered through its destruction, and who were resilient enough to rebuild and rebound and to bring the community to heights it had never seen uh, prior to that. So that's when I wrote Black Wall Street. I wanted to make the information as accessible as possible. 
So I decided to write a book called Up From the Ashes, which is written on the third grade reading level, and it's illustrated. And I can't tell you how many second and third grade classes I've read the book to, and we've had discussions with the little kids about this history. Kids that age understand right and wrong. Mm-hmm. They understand uh, kindness. They understand bad things happening to good people. Right. They understand brotherhood and sisterhood. It's, it's all in the level at which you present the information to them. And presenting it to them at that point really makes them open to receiving the fuller treatment, you know, the more well-rounded historical treatment later on in their lives. And so my primary interest has been making history accessible to people and presenting history from perspectives that are often omitted, especially from curriculum. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we, I think that we miss, Hannibal, is, is missing the, the, that connectivity around different yet same in, in, various, in various ways. And children understand that because kids especially at the ages that that you mentioned and even younger, when they're in school, they don't identify other kids as black or brown or this or that. They'll usually say, well, my friend Jamie said or my my friend Chad said that's what's important to them. And it was it's only until later that that they began to take on thought processes from family traditions of things that are passed down through families. And they begin to take on those other thoughts that are damaging to their psyche and completely changes how they think, act, feel and believe. And so I'd like to get into this book a little bit. I have my copy. I believe I got this from you last year. Those of you who do not have this, you need to get it. Published in 2018, but the Sauners of Chandler, a pioneering power couple in pre-civil rights, Oklahoma. I was like fascinated because there's so much of what they were able, able to do as a power couple, but still with even with their affluence as well as their influence with dignitaries and, and, and all that they had created, still understanding that we've come this far by faith, truly, but also we're still inside of a system that only allows for so much um, and only allows us to be as free or as, as liberated as that system wants us to be. And so I, we still have to, we're still being regulated, so to speak, in, in various, in various ways. And so, you know, Chandler is just, you know, right up the, right up the road. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about this book, but why this story? You know, I ran across at some point some photographs of, of Lena Sonner, who's the wife uh, and the couple, George and Lena Sonner. She's a very beautiful, flamboyant woman who loved to dress. She was, they were relatively 
wealthy. She wore uh, these gigantic hats and beautiful gowns. So I went, uh, there was a photo exhibition of Lena Sauter. I had to know, you know, what's beneath all that? Who is this woman? It, it turns out she's a remarkable educator here in Oklahoma, in, in Chandler, a small town. She and her husband, George, George was a lawyer, cotton broker, businessman, had a business on Main Street in Chandler in the early 1900s, truly remarkable. They actually were kind of a bridge between the races in mm. Chandler. She was principal of Douglas School. The white papers at the time, this is like 1915, 1916 and on, they talked about how well-prepared the students at Douglas School were. And in fact, they were better prepared than the students at the white school. That's remarkable for the white press to be saying that during right. that era. So I just thought that we need to elevate some of these folks who have been lost to history. They, they should have been elevated. They should be in every Oklahoma history textbook, but they aren't. Mm -hmm. They've been lost to history because there's nobody to provide a voice for them, nobody to advocate for, for them and their rightful place in the pantheon of historical figures here in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I'm going through all of these pictures and and looking at folks and and what you I love the different things that you 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 wove into the fabric of their of telling of the telling of their story. And even when I got to page 138 and you, and you have the I also found that this is interesting is like when you start asking people, did you know that there was a black na national anthem? Say what now? You know, and when I was in school, uh, I had to learn this song like every stanza and we had to sing it. And oftentimes we sang it before school started. It's sad commentary that so many of our kids don't know this song, but just going through going through the book and, and how, how Ms. Ms. Lena was responsible for, I was, was it the Ellis family? Yes. The yeah. Ellis, the yeah. Ellis family who had something like 10 kids. And at some point, all 10 had gone through as had become educators in one way or the other, based upon the influence of this one woman and her power to speak to and draw out their excellence. It's interesting because the, one of the persons who was the strongest advocate for my, for my going forth and, and, and finishing the book was Mel Chapman. Mel Chapman is an older gentleman who now lives in Virginia. He's the son of one of the Ellis children. Mm. And he, he, he absolutely said someone must pay tribute to the Saunders. He had a lot of great information, photographs and, and such. And he would he would call me sometimes two, three times a week when I was working on the book. How's it coming? How, how much longer do you have to go? What do you, you need anything from me? How can I help? How do we get the book out? Are we going to have a book signing? What are we doing? He, he was just <laughs> such an enthusiast about this book, which says to me, he understands how important it is that we have these historic role models that are, are known to people, not just black people, but to all people. And that applies equally to the founders and the visionaries who created the successful Black Wall Street District Absolutely. In, in Tulsa. 
we need to elevate those folks, make sure people know who they are, know that 100 years ago, people in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District created a thriving entrepreneurial and business community. So I want kids, especially black kids, to understand, yeah, you can, you can want to be the next LeBron James. You can want to be the next Halle Berry. But, 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 but you can also want to be the next Mabel B. Little or the, Ma- yes. the, next, the next Lula Williams or the next Lena yes. Sonner or the next A.J. Smitherman or the next B.C. Franklin or the next A.C. Jackson. Those are all possibilities well within your reach because those people did what they did in an environment that is far more racist and oppressive than any environment will ever face. That's I mean, that's that's the key too, right? What they were able to create and not only create, but sustain the sustainability of what they created and then going back and getting their brother, their sister, um, their family members, bringing people and, you know, how people, you know, first there's this migration from the south to the north and then people were leaving the north coming here because they heard about this Black Wall Street, what is that? And Black people are thriving. And knowing those names, and even yesterday when I was doing some some research around Black mental health, coming across Olivia Hooks and her being able to, in her 80s, doing a lot of her work, but it started back when she's going to schools like Ohio State, in the 40s, going to schools like Columbia University, going to schools and then also subsequently teaching, becoming a professor for decades. I believe it was three decades at at Fordham. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Olivia Hooker, uh, such a remarkable woman. She passed away just a year, year or so ago. She was 102 or three. I can't remember. Yeah, 103, 103. You know, she continued to have a really sound mind up until her last days. She did many, many interviews that are available on YouTube talking about her actual experiences here during the massacre. She was a little child. She broke all sorts of of barriers, both in terms of gender and in terms of, of, of race. And, you know, we need to know that because sometimes we we get fixated on the obstacles and the struggles that we have. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do have obstacles. We do have struggles. There is systemic structural racism. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. No doubt about it. No doubt. But it's not like it was in 1920. Truly. It's not like it was in 1920. And so we have people who were able to surmount those obstacles at a most horrific time in our history. Sociologists and historians call the early part of the 20th century in America the nadir of race relations, the low point of mm-hmm. race relations. Why? Mm-hmm. Because of all these events called race riots that were occurring all throughout the United States, these were invasions of black communities by and large by white vigilante mobs. They happened in towns and cities and communities all across the nation. More than two dozen of these things happened in 1919 alone. You mentioned Lift Every Voice, the Black National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson, who penned yeah. that, called the summer and fall of 1919 Red Summer because of the, the blood that flowed quite literally in the streets from the civil unrest. And at the same time, let's look at lynching. Lynching 
is domestic terrorism, pure and simple. Yes, lynching, period. Lynching is not just a punishment or a vicious murder, which it often was about of an African-American for some sort of social slight or perceived legal infraction. The point of lynching was to reinforce white dominance, white hegemony, and white supremacy, pure and simple. It's important, I think, that we, we talk about lynching as domestic terrorism. Absolutely. 9-11 is not, they're, they're, the Murrah building, all those are, are incidents of, of terrorism on our soil, but there are many, many precipitating incidents as well. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about the things that she, that Dr. Hooks did, Olivia Hooks did in terms of gender, being the first Black African-American woman in the Coast Guard when she wanted to be in the Navy and was not allowed to be. And, and, and what I'm, I'm also impressed by that she taught until her 80s. She was not retiring. She didn't retire until she was 87 years old. And then to live beyond that retirement until she was 103. It like mind blown. And, and even starting, uh, I think it was at that time, it was the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in her 80s. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, who does that? Right. And we're not lifting, we're not lifting these narratives. And I, and I, I love what you said about no disrespect to LeBron James, no, no disrespect to an Oprah Winfrey, but long before they came along and accomplished what they have accomplished. And, you know, it's kudos for that. I love basketball. I love basketball. That's, I love it. And I love Oprah. But here's the thing is that there are all these people who are also a part of that movement that started our historical black colleges and universities. These were folks who some of them did not have the means of the Somers. These were, these were people like my grandmothers who did, who did what we call day's work, but they wanted better for their children and their children's children. And they may not have had that education, but they knew that education was a key and was a, a access, a portal for better. So can, can you talk a little bit more about because we've we've received an, an extraordinary history lesson just now, but you just gave in 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 a nutshell a a historical overview of what was happening in 1919, 1920, 1921. But we have this zero symposium coming up here in in the fall, and usually, you know, uh, of course, it would be done when we're there in person and we're doing it, we're doing it now virtually and we're all getting used to this, this virtual life. But I, I want to talk about access, ways in which the, the families of those Greenwood Avenue, doctors, lawyers, shop owners, educators, what kind of access did they give us and give Tolson's that are we, do we still have that access? Are we taking advantage of that access or have we 
lost that access. Well, we need another couple of hours because that raises a number of different <laughs> Of course. A lot of different ways to go with that. One way to go with that is to talk about why there is such a disparity between black wealth and white wealth. White mm-hmm. wealth typically is 10 times that of black wealth. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is that we've not been able to transfer intergenerationally black wealth. To the extent that we've been able to accumulate anything, we've not been able to transfer because, for example, the massacre in Tulsa comes along in 1921 and obliterates a lot of the black wealth. A lot of the wealthy people, the Stratfords, the Gurleys, they they lose almost everything. They they move out of town. So that intergenerational transfer of of wealth is an issue. I, I think another thing that we need to think about is historical racial trauma and how that trauma is present today. So I would argue that history is not past at all. It's part of our present. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the way it plays out here in Tulsa for me is just a general sense of distrust uh, on the part of black folks of white institutions and white leadership. Why? Because white institutions and white leadership failed black Tulsa in 1921 in a major way. Major. And a number of white leaders in this community have acknowledged that that was in fact the case. So we, we have this, this, this gulf of distrust that we still have to work to bridge going forward. And that is part of the historical racial trauma that we deal with on a daily, daily basis. Yeah. You know, for those of you who may be tuning in who don't live in Tulsa, I currently live downtown. Um, Hannibal, we live downtown. So I, I can look in the direction from my building and especially if I'm on the roof, I can look at the direction and, you know, we're not very far. We're not very far, just blocks away from historical Greenwood. But when you're, when you're there, it is not, it is nowhere near the same. It's nowhere near the, the, the same. I believe that there, there are, there are folks who are, who are who are massaging that area to to bring to bring it perhaps not to the same place but to create a new iteration of black wall street to where doctors and lawyers put their place their offices there that that more than you know barbershops and and restaurants all those those things are are very important to our community but that is a place that is very vibrant and very much alive and and I agree with you that raising these narratives and putting names because if we just say black wall street that's very big and it, it and it can be very ominous but i but who was black wall street name some folks right give me some history around and you've done that very beautifully and seamlessly and you've paid homage to so many in your in your writing and it's been extraordinary to to have that connection and have that connectivity but as we are moving towards the symposium that is put on by MHAOK the Mental Health Association Oklahoma what's powerful about that is 
these snippets of history. And as you said, you know, this will take another couple of hours to talk about, but having, usually it's two days this year, it's going to be three days because we do, we are doing it virtually. It's three days of, of an infusion of history that is for so many people, even folks right here in Tulsa. It's an infusion of our history, but also talking about you brought up something very significant about the those portals of access become very skewed when we're dealing with historical racial trauma. That trauma is something that shuts us down in, in a lot of different ways. And then the 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 distrust of white leadership, even today, of white leadership, of how we've been failed over the years. And I think we would love to be able to say that we haven't been failed in recent years, in recent times. And it's, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. And so can you give a little bit like a little bit of a highlight of what your keynote may be about and what you may may what you may lift up some narratives that you may lift up some themes you may lift up during your keynote so one of the things that's important to me is this whole notion of reconciliation we have the john f franklin center for reconciliation we have other groups that are similarly focused on reconciliation bringing the community back together is, is the typical connotation of reconciliation. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There's, I guess it's an open question as to whether or not the community was ever united in the first place, but l- right. let's assume that reconciliation is, is the term we want to go with. So I, I've always said that to move us farther along the road to reconciliation, and I choose the metaphor carefully, road to reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a, not a point. There's no finality. There's no stopping. It's a right. process. So what we need to to get there or to move farther along this road that's almost never ending is an acknowledgement of the fractures that we've had, the fissures that we have in our community, appropriate apologies from the people who did the harm and atonement measures that we can take to make amends as well as we can for the damage that was done to our community by these acts. One of those mm-hmm. acts would be the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. I can give you an, a, a, an example that's really concrete as to how that might look. So the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce was around in 1921. It was the leading business association, business convener in 1921. So recently, the leadership of the chamber, Mike Neal and, and others at the chamber, in anticipation of the 100th anniversary of the massacre, decided to look back on the records of the chamber to see what the chamber was doing in 1921. I think it's safe to say that that a large part of the leadership was shocked by the various acts of omission and commission on the part of the chamber that really proved to be an impediment to the Black community at its Mm -hmm. greatest hour of need. Mm -hmm. So Mike Neal did something pretty remarkable. He hosted... Um, a press conference at the Greenwood Cultural Center, the leading history repository in the community today. He acknowledged the chamber's dereliction of duty back in 1921. He donated relevant portions of the 1921 chamber minutes to the Greenwood Cultural Center to preserve those for posterity. He offered his own apology on behalf of the chamber 
for its dereliction of duty in 1921. But he also talked about opportunities and initiatives that the chamber is looking at targeted specifically to the African-American community, in part as remediation for some of the harm that was done low these many years ago. Mm-hmm. So it really is about acknowledgement, apology, and atonement. And there's no perfect way to do that. Mm-hmm. We're never even going to approach that unless we take some concrete steps. Um, thank you, Hannibal. I just got a question from Evan White. He said, great to see you again, even virtually, but how do you think about the current event is the broader perspective of the historical trauma of the community here in Tulsa? And are there any lessons we can learn that might also be applicable to other groups with historical trauma, for example, Latinx and American Indian communities? That's a huge, huge question. It is. Historical trauma, historical racial trauma, historical ethnic trauma, whatever you want to call it, is a big deal, not just in Tulsa, but, but really across the nation. And we have this tortured history affecting our Native American brothers and sisters as, as well. And even within that history, as Evan well knows, Evan is a friend, as Evan well knows, there is um, racial tumult and conflict that we don't want to talk about. And that is between Native Americans, cultural Native Americans, and their black brothers and sisters, some of whom were the descendants or are the descendants of formerly enslaved people, because we know the five tribes um, held um, African-Americans in, in, in bondage. Right. And the five sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War. There's all this history around the relationship between Native Americans and, and African-Americans that is not included in any kind of substantive way in our curriculum. If we don't talk about it, we're never going to fix these problems. The Cherokee Nation is a great example of at least partially resolving that conflict, even though it had to happen through litigation. It's largely resolved because former Chief Bill John Baker, you know, once once a decision had been made at the federal district court level, accepted this decision, incorporated these so-called freedmen. These are people who are descendants of people who were formerly enslaved. Incorporate those people as full citizens of the tribe, as were as was mandated by treaties that were executed in, in 1866. Evan knows all this all this history, but I, I say that to say this is really complex stuff. And it's not only a bilateral matter. It's not just black and white. It's, it's, right. it's beyond black and 